1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Annie Burke about their own best creations, women writers in post-war television. Uh, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Um, I'm delighted to be talking about this book. A uh, slight kind of spoiler alert, uh, I really kind of love the book, both in terms of uh, it as a um, important bit of, uh, I guess, kind of television studies history, but also it's just a really interesting book and, and is a really good read.
0: That's my and, favorite and kind of spoiler. Thank you. Oh, no, like, They're yeah. the best
1: spoilers, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. You, you should all read and, and buy this. This is great. But I, I suppose the place to start is with, with a kind of slightly sort of odd question, because it seems really obvious that, of course, someone would be motivated to write a book about uh, women TV writers, uh, particularly in, in that kind of golden age of American TV, but but what kind of got you going? What what sort of inspired you to to work on this subject?
0: I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. Um... If you look at a picture of me and my chosen eyewear, I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that I grew up watching Tina Fey on Saturday Night Live. Uh, And she was, you know, the weekend update host, but she before that she was the writer and that was sort of part of her persona on the show was this kind of snarky, bespectacled brunette who was a writer who had, you know, gotten the opportunity slash was deigning to go on camera uh, to do the to do the you know, to perform her words, uh, to perform her scripted comedy and I think that was pretty formative for me at least I suspected it was and then I, I not so long ago found an old fan letter that I wrote and never sent so I think it was even more Uh, important than I even anticipated. So just from a young age, I was interested in women writers because I was a woman, a young woman, and I wanted to write. Um, And I think that the 50s piece um, was also sort of from a young age, watching old TCM movies, watching uh, classic films with my parents, with my family. Um, And I think that those kind of personal interests came together in my PhD program where I was in film and media studies and American studies at Yale and got to sort of start writing about in a cultural studies context sort of, um, I started with the woman in the writer's room. Um, the 1950s um, allowing me this opportunity to do the kind of archival research in places like the Billy Rose Theater Collection in the New York Public Library and the Library of Congress. Uh, so it allowed me to be a historian on a subject that maybe I'd initially approached from a contemporary or even a fan standpoint. Um, I have always been attracted to kind of artsy pursuits, uh, so I'm rarely the only woman in the room, and so I think even that as a kind of foreign anthropological stance I couldn't imagine what it would be like except for you know a short-lived moment of college improv that I won't go into um, so I think that I started with that which is my second chapter in the book uh, about you know the the woman writer in the comedy variety, Program, uh, but from there it was just a question of like, how do I build out this study? Uh, and ultimately, with the help of my advisors, I decided to sort of go deep into this decade, as opposed to trying to do a trans, you know, trans-decade study of the woman writer. Uh, even though now in my public writing, I've been able to sort of adapt the insights and the and the logics of post-war television writing and the industry then to looking at how those themes and motifs have persisted into the present.
1: Yeah, I mean that, that's one thing for for a history book. It almost couldn't be any more uh, kind of contemporary, and you know, it, it speaks really directly um, to not just television production, but you know, kind of media and creative production more more generally. And and this is despite the fact that you know you're writing about a period with you know real kind of distinctive uh, differences, um, and that historical context of TV, I think, is really important. You know, you mentioned the atmosphere of the writers' room, and I think. We might spend a little bit of time on that. But before that, could you just give a flavor of sort of what, I mean, this is such a big question, isn't it? Like, what was America like in the post-war period? (laughs) But, you know, a sort of a a little flavor of television and and America in in the era that you're writing about.
0: Absolutely. So um, some of the more maybe big picture things to think about that intersect with my study is sort of the the post-war consumerist boom, this kind of emphasis on uh, the wealth and the sort of suburban aspirations of the white middle-class family in the years following World War II. So we see sort of um, an increased interest and emphasis on uh, decorating and sort of enhancing the domestic space and the television set ends up becoming a central piece for many sort of families who are looking to keep up with the Joneses. So I look at sort of the rise of the television set as becoming um, an increasingly uh, important device for sort of what Anna McCarthy in her book calls the citizen machine. So what kinds of messages are coming in from the television and who are those messages for? And then by extension, who is best positioned to deliver those messages? So we're thinking about um, not only kind of um, sponsored programming, there's a, sort of a blurry line between what a sponsored um long-form advertisement it would be and a television show that is hosted by a single sponsor, which was very common at the very beginning of television until they moved into more of a multi-sponsor or advertisement break model. Um, but we're also thinking about all of the related kind of industries that um, exist. I talk about sort of um, the diet industry or fashion or all of the related kinds of pressures that women were under and that television was sort of a part of that. Um, So when you have television, when you have television kind of advertising and promoting all of these ideas, particularly trying to speak to uh, white middle class homemakers, the ones who are home most of the time during the day and who might be picking the television shows at night, um, that is where I sort of move into Women writers, both who start in radio, who are working for ad agencies, who maybe began in um, theater reviews or like sort of not, I would say like sort of vaudeville adjacent kinds of live entertainment, are moving into television because they are thought to be the ideal sort of way into understanding the model female viewer consumer.
1: And they move into uh, well, it, it, it's it, it's fascinating. This actually because I was going to say a, a highly kind of you know masculinized uh, profession, but actually one of the things the book does is tries to kind of say well actually there's a bit of a of a history of, of how television almost became television, mm-hmm. um, and, and I suppose that you know the story of that is on the one hand the kind of story of things like the writers' room, which I suppose where um, maybe familiar with um or or at least you know have particular visions of through um in some ways kind of contemporary media representations um both 30 rock and then you know broader media representations of of the period but also you try and do it through an individual story um and lucille Mm callan i think is her story actually is, is really great as a way of illustrating both the construction of television writing as a masculine um, activity but also you know the kind of um, importance of, of individuals who I suppose have almost been kind of forgotten or or, or put aside um, as, as disruptors of that story.
0: Yeah I would say that's very much the case. Uh, part of the arc of the book is trying to figure out, how and why the television writer became a gendered profession um i would say a raced profession but from its very beginnings it was overwhelmingly uh for white writers uh, there was like a more robust black radio tradition than there would be in television there was also a more robust um women writer women sort of women's voices on radio i would say like trump that in television. Um, and in in a certain way, the reason why television at its beginnings had such a space for women, I think is partially because of radio um, and because television industry was, was based in, in New York, like radio, unlike when it would later move to California. Um, but Lucille Kalin, who was the woman writer in a show called Your Show of Shows, uh, is probably one of the lesser known, Um, writers room alums of that program. Uh, The more famous ones would include Carl Reiner, who would go on to create the Dick Van Dyke Show, um, and Mel Brooks, of course. Um, The star of your show of shows was Sid Caesar, um, who I think... Someone, anyone from who is interested in 1950s television would certainly know him. Uh, but his sort of this was his main vehicle, though he would go on to do more shows and, and films. Um, it was a very masculine, very Jewish, very sort of chaotic space. And Lucille Kalen, um, was the woman in the room, which meant that she, um, sort of stuck or I would say potentially was rewarded with the opportunity to be the scribe. So she was the typist. Um, and so sometimes she felt as though that men treated her like a secretary. There's a sort of an apocryphal story about Mel Brooks um, when they worked together on a different show telling her, you don't tell me what's funny, you just type. Um, but she also said that her place behind the typewriter allowed her the opportunity to uh, be the decider to ha- make the executive choice whether or not to include what one of the men in the room would shout out. Uh, she also worked very closely with the, with the head writer of the show named Mel Tolkien, and together they would write um, the Hickenlooper's sketches for this um, show that included a lot of recurring sketches. It was sort of like, I don't want to say it was like Saturday Night Live because it was much more star- star-centered. It was a vehicle for Sid Caesar and the leading lady, Imogene Coca, with whom Lucille Kalen also had an intimate creative collaboration. Um, but it also would have music and dance numbers. So they had a recurring sketch called The Loopers, which was allowed the two stars to play sort of um, a wacky married couple anticipating and sort of echoing I think a lot of the sort of early television representations of marriage but this was one in which the the husband and wife were very equal um they were equally they were equally smart and equally silly I would say um so Kaylin was I think an important person in this study and important for me to start with both because she um was very articulate in her like later years after, uh, decades after the show was over, about like what she contributed and um, detailing the conditions in the room and how she felt the pressure to be dignified and ladylike, but also to make herself heard and that those were in conflict. And that she had a kind of um, second wave feminist perspective on her experience in the writer's room that I'd say not all women writers either they never would talk about it in that way or they never had the opportunity to do so. So for me sort of in approaching her work, she did a lot of the a lot of the analysis for me because she would sort of talk about Oh, we didn't have time to talk about gender in the writers' room, which couple you know, which doubled as the costuming room, and I had literal jock straps hanging over my head. But no, we didn't talk about gender. To answer your question, that was the kind of insight that you would come across when you would read about what she'd written about her time.
1: I, I think it's important to to say about her story is she's not like the only uh, woman writer. You know, it, it's not like she is. Um, I, I suppose um, this this really sort of unique person, and, and one of the things that that I got from the book um, through its its use of um, telling various uh, women writers' stories it is the sense of actually, you know, we've not just forgotten this history, but um, it's really important to see that there are different approaches and, and different, um, I guess, kind of models of of being a, a woman writer in in in, telly in, in the period. Um, and later on in the book, you you, you talk, I, I think almost explicitly as a kind of a a mode of being or or a a way of sort of dealing with um, some of those gender tensions through this idea of a stay-at-home showrunner. So Gertrude Berg and and Peg Lynch are the examples. And I was really sort of fascinated by that term, both what it means and what is a stay-at-home showrunner, but also what it tells us about working life during the period.
0: Certainly. Um, So I would say if if your show of shows and Lucia Kaelin is a more familiar television formulation, kind of um, like you said, sort of a similar like The Only Woman in the Room working on a sketch comedy show a lot you know, 30 Rock or something, uh, Gertrude Berg, Peg Lynch, and the Stay at Home Show Runner are going to be slightly more foreign to a modern viewer, both because um, that, ki- that exact pressure to... Be to sort of create the television space as a home doesn't exist, and the kinds of shows they were producing also don't get made anymore. So Gertrude Berg uh, wrote, starred, and um, created. She created, wrote, and starred in um, the Goldbergs, which began as a radio show. And Peg Lynch uh, also wrote and starred and created in um, Ethel and Albert, they both started as radio programs, and they both both of their shows sort of. Um, they are uh, so sort of, a, I don't know what I'm trying to say when I, um, they both bear the imprint. They both sort of are shaped by their roots in radio in terms of the storytelling being very dialogue-driven, sort of small slice-of-life storytelling um, that's funny, but not laugh track funny. They're um, just kind of the humor of the back and forth between husbands and wives and children. Um, so... Berg and Lynch in different ways articulated what I called the stay-at-home showrunner, which was that they uh, emphasized how their experiences as women and wives and mothers informed the ways that they wrote the show, what they wrote about, and the ways that they ran the set or ran the operation. So... If you want to think about sort of the pressures on women in the post-war moment to be maternal, to be um, sort of the keepers of what Elaine Tyler May writes about the domestic containment of the Cold War moment, uh, to be these moral beacons and to always be sort of caring for the future citizens of America, you see... That that might exist in some some tension with uh, women's desire to leave the home, to be professional, to have careers that are separate uh, from their familial responsibilities. So um, the way to merge those is to explain what I talk about in the book is to create a scripted life, meaning both in your scripts and in your public persona, in your, in your public relations, um, that those two are not intention because, in fact, women are the best equipped to write for television because television comes into the home and it's about families and it's for families. And so women, wives and mothers are the best people to write for television. You can't leave them at home. They have a they have a responsibility. Um, they did this in different ways. Gertrude Berg was maybe a little more heavy handed about it, even though she had studied playwriting. Uh at Columbia University, she would say, but my real inspiration are my neighbors and the people around me. Like, I, like um, you need a wife and a mother to write the kind of things I write. Peg Lynch would sometimes resist that because she began writing Ethel and Albert as sort of a very short-form radio play before she was married. Um, and so when people would say, how do you write about a married couple when you're not married? She would say something along the lines of, well, people write about murderers, don't they? Like, she could... She was a little bit more um, in tension with that; she didn't want to be associated or completely conflated with her character Ethel. Uh, I think Gertrude Berg struggled with it. She had the additional pressure of uh, being Jewish and having uh, worked with, played alongside, and um, her you know on on air and on screen husband was ultimately Hollywood was blacklisted, um, and she I think felt the strain and the struggle of being sort of surveilled or watched. So she had sort of this additional level of conservative rhetoric around um, being a woman who creates a home-like space on the set and who is at heart sort of um, a nurturer, not too, as she's called in some, some coverage of her, too shrewd. Um, so I think that's the stay-at-home showrunner term is a way that I was trying to reconcile how they put their domestic identity first uh, and used it, kind of leveraged it so that they could be pretty ambitious professionals. Uh, most of the – I would say both Berg and Lynch were doing – they were writing their shows. They were keeping creative control over them, um, publishing their teleplays with um, – to be sold. They were like pretty entrepreneurial to use John Krasuski's term about men like Patty Chayefsky, Reginald Rose and other post-war television writers. These women were also entrepreneurial and thinking about multiple ways to make money and to bring visibility to their brand without looking like they were being too pushy or masculine about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that tension, um, not just the kind of... um, gender boundaries uh, that they were constrained by but also the tension between the kind of public and private comes through in in Anna Phillips story which is the kind of middle of the book and and it's interesting how um these stories all take place um with with their kind of differences but also their similarities in the context of a really big change um in television uh, as a kind of uh, production system like i guess in the kind of political economy of television and a big geographic uh change and i'm really interested in, in in what kind of impact um the shift from new york city to hollywood um and the rise of, of almost a kind of a new television industry had um not just for um the people we've been discussing but maybe kind of more generally for, for women writers i know you you talk about the rise of new professions like being a, a story editor and um, that you know, sort of former secretarial role is is both challenged and in some ways reinforced as well. Um, and I'm very interested in in the impact of that geographic shift.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Erna Phillips, and she's sort of an odd case because she was really based out of Chicago, which was kind of a micro television industry. It was not New York or Los Angeles, um, and I think her career somewhat stalled in that sort of early 1950s moment because she was, because television networks were sort of moving toward um, a model that relied less on these local television industries and more deciding that they wanted to sort of double down on national um, productions. And she was sort of caught for a little while before she ultimately sort of succeeded with Guiding Light and other shows that she was moving from radio to television. So Phillips was sort of, I would say, she was an interesting sort of hinge point in the study because elements of her work felt very much of the old television, the radio relationship, her early shows like um, These Are My Children, um, being very personal, her kind of deploying that kind of female rhetoric. But instead of being a stay-at-home showrunner, she was kind of um, – her brand was sort of I've never been married. She did have children. Um, she adopted children, but she um, would talk about how she was sort of a failure at love and her her inability to maintain a relationship with a man would be like television's gain. Like, I'm a little bit apart from all of it. And so that makes me a better observer of all of this for, for the soaps. Um, so in one way, she seems like of television's past, but she's moving towards television's future because she's a little bit um, – she's – sort of becoming an industry herself, uh, having a lot of writers write for her. They talk about the soap opera mills. Um, so you're seeing this like increasing m- this move away from a kind of like personal artisan, like making of, of television into something that's more capitalized and more streamlined and more um, part of a bigger industry as television is moving from New York and radio and relocating to Hollywood and being absorbed into the film studio apparatus. Now, around 1948, with the Paramount decision, film studios are being required by the government to divest themselves of their theater chains because um, the kind of the control that film studios had from production through distribution was viewed as a violation of antitrust, Um, you might say. But that's what networks do now, that's what studios do now. Well, I would urge you to Google that because those antitrust laws have been um, completely hollowed out in recent years in the United States. But at the time, this was seen as a monopoly. So as film studios had to get rid of their theater chains, they were put in a temporary freeze, meaning they were not allowed to buy anything, like, for example, uh, television networks. Uh, But once that freeze went up in the early 50s, uh, film studios started to get into the independent telefilm television production game. So as television was moved to Los Angeles, to Hollywood, it gets absorbed into that machinery, which included a lot of hack writers who were willing to just sort of write the script. They, you know, made good money, but they didn't necessarily have a lot of creative control. I like to talk about Joe Gillis from Sunset Boulevard, because sometimes that's the reference that people will understand, the kind of um, professional um, writer who will do do his job. And he's kind of like William Holden, dead eye. That's sort of the cliche, just like do the job. This is not the precious stay at home showrunner mode anymore. Um, So as women are deciding whether to make that move, many of them had to decide whether they wanted to move to Los Angeles, whether they were willing to give up the kind of creative control, whether they had made their names in the kinds of genres that were becoming increasingly popular. Um, we see like some drop off, obviously we could talk about that later. Uh, But the women who succeed in this move to Hollywood are ones who are willing to be more sort of contingent freelance um, less. I would say the television writer as a whole becomes a less public face and that that has a disproportionate effect on the woman television writer because um, the publicness and the sort of the, scripted lives of these women writers, that they exist for Americans at home, makes it possible for more of them to come. You know, that kind of, if you can see it, you can be in mode. So as the television writer becomes increasingly invisible, that uh, means that the woman television writer becomes less important, less of a cultural imaginary and potentially less of an industry fixture. So you mentioned the story editor. That's one mode of authorship that was very open to women in New York and Hollywood because it sort of married creative and emotional um, abilities with administrative expertise. So right now, a story editor, if you see that on a television credit crawl if you see that someone's a story editor, it usually means that they are um, a staff writer on a show that got promoted. So they have additional control over what people are writing. They might help do the outlines or sort of monitor other people's scripts. But in the 1950s, a story editor is really someone who works with writers to help them develop the script, who chooses which submissions in um, a show like an anthology drama, like Twilight Zone or something, where every episode is different, different characters, different story. So it's a little bit like a development executive in American movies now. Um, and I would say that that is one of the more authorial and less visible roles in television in this moment, where there are a lot of women doing it, but you don't necessarily get credit for it. And certainly not everyone understood it as a writerly or a literary contribution, even though I make the argument that it was.
1: What does this mean for women's representation on on television? And actually you've, mentioned uh the twilight zone but you also talk about alfred hitchcock presents um kind of later on in 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 the book but um you also get into how women were actually represented on screen as as creatives as well um and and what kind of women i suppose um appeared on television from this new production system
0: um interesting so in in contrast with kind of the women that I talk about in the earlier chapters where sort of a homemaker can become legible as a creative sort of writerly person, you know, like in Gertrude Berg or in Peg Lynch's shows I talk about that they might be playing a housewife They might be talking about domestic questions, but the ways that they go about solving them or the ways that they um, talk about them always feels a little bit like the home is a space of creativity and humor and sort of literary prowess. I would say that the representations, as I read them through these sort of industry shifts, I've made this interpretive move to look at, okay, so what does that mean for how women professionals and like domestic women are represented? So... Something that I talk about in the story editor's chapter is looking at, you say, The Twilight Zone, Rod Serling wrote um, a teleplay called Patterns. And I was interested, and it's set in an office. It's about um, a young man and an older man, sort of um, a rivalry in the office about this question of whether this young upstart man will ultimately uh, dominate over the older man who represents kind of the older ways of doing business and the older sort of maybe less cutthroat um, white collar environment. Um, and so that is typically looked at that that play is looked at as sort of an artifact of post-war masculinity and sort of ageism and the fear of the of the up of the new generation. But I was interested in that play because I, I looked at the relationship between this young man who's sort of struggling with what to do and um a secretary character who sort of knows the ropes and knows the office environment better than anyone. Uh, And I looked at that through the lens of Rod Serling's uh, personal relationship with story editor for that particular anthology drama under which Patterns was released, um, Studio One, and looking at Florence Britton, who was a very well-known Probably one of the better-known women story editors of that moment, and looking at sort of the ways in which women who were not getting the kind of credit uh, behind the scenes often knew the industry as well as or better than anyone else. Uh, so I'm I looked at sort of these women support characters in this chapter about women story editors to look at how that kind of professional dynamic was being mirrored and represented on screen. And then in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents chapter, which is mostly about that show, but sort of looks at the suspense anthology drama as a whole, um, instead of um, the sort of the, the um, crafty literary um housewife of the earlier chapters, we have something that I call the literate heroine, which is that we have less of a kind of uh, settled domestic character, but a woman who is constantly in danger and who uses her knowledge of the genre in which she lives, which is the suspense genre, to find her way out. So time and again, in Alfred Hitchcock, presents these scripts often written by women writers, and the ones I look at are entirely written by women writers with the exception of one that I'll get to. Um, these are women who understand, um, who are regular readers of suspense literature and who will realize that the man that they live with, the man that they're dealing with is a villain and their knowledge of the genre conventions is usually how I write that they they, they write their way out of danger. So there are different episodes in which... Um, women will sort of warn or express the danger they're in through writing a fictional story or um they act out sort of they reenact a literary moment of history as in an episode of called into thin air where a woman sort of rips the wallpaper from the walls to reveal the conspiracy going on a kind of reclamation of uh the story, the yellow wallpaper, but instead of her revealing that she's hysterical, it's in fact reveals that she is more clear eyed than anyone. Um, so we see the sort of, um, that type emerge that sort of, um, that female character on screen is emerging at the same time as women writers are being asked to make this transition from being, um, the woman in the room, the woman who creates a home on the set, to ones who are being asked to be consummate professionals who know the business, who know the genres, and can just sort of crank it out. And so I think that those relationships between industry forms and cultural forms are really telling, both in terms of how the industry story is being played out for a public audience and what potentially women are taking from it as we move into sort of a the 19, early 1960s and we're moving into sort of the rise of second wave feminism and how television has planted the seeds for that
1: yeah i mean there's loads more questions actually i, I, sure. I could ask you but the, the thing that really kind of um comes to mind um from, from what you've just said and, and this again is it's one of those tricky questions because it's really a, a summary of of an entire book is is a kind of what happened next question um you know what what's i suppose that the sort of Um, the longer term story of of these women who um, are at the core of the book.
0: Yeah. um, I think that there's this question. I think that's a two part question in terms of like, what happened to these women and what happened to the figure of the woman television writer? And the second one is, I, I sort of I think I already said but I'll just reiterate that as the television writer becomes increasingly absorbed into a machinery that is less about demonstrating their um, their expertise they become less of a public figure that that impacts what the woman tell what the what the woman television writer means to the public and who we all think a television writer is um, So I would say that um, that kind of, Movement underground becomes important to that representational scheme. But I also have mentioned in the book uh, that I think that as television becomes a Hollywood product, the writer, um, sort of the star producer, anyone who has uh, producer power, so either you're the star and the producer like Elizabeth Montgomery or late in the 1970s, Mary Tyler Moore, that women can sort of get more storytelling power that way than they can as hired writers um, being staffed on a show or being a freelance writer contributing to different shows. Um, So there are opportunities for writers, um, sorry, there are opportunities for women to have an impact on story, but I think that um, in a way that, the irony is that in a pre-second wave feminist context, the woman television writer looms larger in the public imagination, and in certain ways has more power than she will as um, these these feminist political and cultural questions are being asked. Um, and I look at the character of Sally Rogers on the Dick Van Dyke Show as a as a kind of important organizing moment in that she is a one of the first. I think she, I don't know. I don't want to say that she's the first, but she is probably the best known um, woman woman television writer character up to that point, um, based on Lucille Ballin, but more so on Selma Diamond, who wrote for a the the next sketch comedy show that would star Sid Caesar's uh, called Caesar's Hour. Um, but she is not written by women. She is a woman television writer character, it's a lot of words at once, who has been written entirely by men, sort of a men's recollection of what it was like to work with Selma Diamond, who was sort of a a tomboy. She had a stand-up career and an acting career afterwards, Um, and kind of a, like, unlike Lucille Kalin, who was very aware of being the woman in the room, Selma Diamond wanted to be one of the guys, but sally rogers the character wants to be one of the guys but then when she's alone in the show like she's crying with a cat on her lap kind of spinster stereotype uh so we see the kind of push and pull of like there's a certain amount of progress in that representation but then there's also a little bit uh some of the edge and subversion and anti-marriage anti-domesticity jokes that selma diamond was known for they're not so present in sally rogers um so that's sort of what's happening to representation. That's what's happening in the industry. What happens to the people? I think is um, representative of the different reasons why some women didn't continue in the industry, and they re- they range from sort of these structural problems to just personal choices. So, Lucille Kalen was tired of working. And by her own account, she was tired of being interrupted by all these men all the time. She became a very successful mystery novelist. Um, Peg Lynch uh, was a wife and mother who didn't want to move to Los Angeles. She went back to doing radio. Uh, Gertrude Berg, unfortunately, died in the 1960s at at sort of an earlier age. Uh, Then she died prematurely, I would say. She tried to stay in television for a little while. But it seemed like a show like the Goldbergs, a kind of slice of life, ethnic family serial was just not where television was heading. She tried to, uh, in the last season of the Goldbergs, the Goldbergs moved from their tenement building, their apartment building to... um, a suburban home and retitled the show Molly so you can sort of see the assimilation and the erasure of ethnicity happening there Um, but it didn't but then the show was over and she started a new show called Mrs. G goes to college which was basically like if her character of Molly Goldberg Went to college. So it was kind of a weird combination of teen show and the Goldbergs, and it didn't work. It didn't find an audience. You know, sometimes you try to please everyone, you please no one. So she had some good acting roles afterwards, uh, some dramatic roles even that got her some critical acclaim, but she was not television's future. Um, Erna Phillips, by contrast, who also I think died, uh, Sort of earlier than we would have, than we would have hoped. She was sort of part of television's future because she was, a, I would say, both women were business minded, but she was part of a of the daytime television, the soap opera move, uh, which was only growing in momentum. And she, um, you know, this is just sometimes I think a question of whether television was moving in. A, in a direction where these women writers, how they'd made their names, what they were known for, whether that was television's future or its past. Uh, but of course, as Phillips goes on, she's actually writing fewer and fewer scripts. She's sort of, she's dictating the shapes of shows like Guiding Light and As the World Turns. And then um, other people are writing them for her um, in her voice, I would say. And, um, and then, yeah, I mean, the women, like the story editors, I would say that the story editors that I talk about and the freelance writers, these were women who, like, moved in and out of the industry. Some of them remained; Some would move into film. Most of the writers who worked on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, um, I mean, none of them were staff writers. They were contributing one-off scripts. So a lot of them were also still writing novels. They were writing with their partners, Marion Cockrell, who... um wrote for Alfred Hitchcock presents and you know worked with her husband who uh, Francis Cockrell they went on to uh, write for the 1960s Batman series. So you see these women they're sort of not quite as entrenched as the early ones. They don't have a like a nine to five job in television anymore. Um, the writers they're just kind of they're contributing and they're piecing together a livelihood across different, uh, platforms across different media industries. Uh, while women story editors, some of them are becoming writers after their story editors. Other people are getting promoted in more of sort of the the network structure.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, w- one way of reading that story, and actually your analysis more more generally of, of this period is, you know, here is this moment of uh, a broader, um, you know, sort of retrenchments of particular kinds of progress in the you know deeply kind of unequal post war period in america which you know is sort well known and now television has moved on and you know <laughs> Tina Fey is on television and she's writing thirty rock Uh, to kind of go, you know, sort of almost all the way back to where we started, Saturday Night Live. And all of these, you know, kind of um, problems are no longer with us um, and we should be, you know, kind of celebrating how the entertainment industry works. Now, obviously, as researchers in this field, we know that's not even close to being the case. But I'm interested in, I guess, how we might use your analysis to think about the entertainment industry today, how we might kind of head off um, a sort of slightly... Um, bizarre but you know dangerous uh, optimistic um, use of of your book and and how we might use the analysis to kind of carry on um, the struggle really for for a more equal um, on and off screen um, entertainment industry
0: absolutely well some of the things that I cover sort of I talk about in my conclusion are um, a general Encouraging people to be generally suspicious of these studies and metrics that are created. Um, There's been really interesting scholarship generated around how do we come up with the numbers that we do about progress? And how do we measure progress in the first place? Is it the number of women um, who are writing for television shows that we can do we count the number of women or do we count or do we measure how much control they have? How do we even measure that? Um, and just being aware of the ways in which um, television networks can potentially, I don't want to say skew the numbers, but they, they might package their progress in ways that are misleading. Um, I think a lot about the BoJack Horseman scene. There's a character named Diane who is invited to write for a quality drama, like a like a parody of a, pist- a prestige quality drama. It's supposed to be a real one, but it's kind of absurd. Because as you, if you've ever watched BoJack Horseman, um, it's like yeah. an animal-human hybrid of Hollywood called Hollywood. Um, so she's invited to write for this show, but then she's told that like she's there to be the woman – in the, she's there to be a name, a woman's name on the credit so that people can not accuse the show of sexism. Um, I'm not saying that that's always what's happening on television, but that that's one way in which, um, progress can be measured. That's actually misleading. Uh, and that part of what was interesting to me about looking at women in the fifties is that so many, so many of us have a very particular understanding of what, um, 1950s womanhood, white middle-class womanhood looked like, that everyone was home, that it was such a conservative moment and that conservative cultural moments mean conservative um, institutional cultures, but that doesn't always necessarily track. You can be living in a very progressive moment in certain cultural ways and that the institutions and the people run them can be as um, as staunchly against progress as you can imagine. Um, so I look at that, and I'm I'm really interested in this idea um, of what uh, they of what you call like resistant visibility. Is that like the idea that women are positioned on television to try to be both somehow representative of the network that they work on, Netflix or HBO or whatever, but also be to exist as a kind of Um, figure of resistance that I'm part of the network and part of being part of this network is saying that I'm not part of the network, but also technically I am paid by the network. Um, So the woman writer having to somehow, again, occupy a contradiction, just like she did in the 1950s, but now it's sort of a, a corporate contradiction, which is how do I show that I'm like, that I am both representative of how inclusive the network is while also acknowledging that I'm different from most of the people who write for or create for this network. So um, that is the new, that's the new paradox that the woman television writer often has to occupy. And I see some of the same kinds of rhetoric around um, that women are more, are, You know, in this post-Me Too context, it's kind of women are different. Women are nicer. Women are not going to cause a kind of danger in the workplace. Women are not going to – that I'm a a mother first and I'm a writer second. That that kind of talk still still happens in contemporary media coverage and the ways in which women showrunners and writers talk about their – themselves for the American public. So I thought that was really interesting. And again, this is one of those things where it's like not to say that anything that they're saying is not true about them or to cast any doubt on how different women talk about their lives and experiences in the press, but together what that creates and what kind of um, what kind of messages that that promotes, particularly when you're looked at as a collective, how do women writers talk about their work and their lives now? And how much has it really changed in the 70 years since television began?
1: I mean, it sounds like another book is needed. Oh, uh, dear. will um, write that one. Well, I was going to say, would you think another book on this subject? Have you got a completely different topic? Um, have you had quite enough of writing books? What, what are you going to be doing next? <laughs>
0: Well, I, I would not say that I've had quite enough of writing books but um, I'm not at, I'm not currently working on a sequel to this book yet um, I think that um, right now I would say that I'm interested in, in writing a lot for the public I've been writing sort of spin-off and related materials about women in the media industries uh, for the for Um, outlets like the Washington Post and Literary Hub and the Los Angeles Review of Books, where I am the editor of the film section. So I'm continuing to do that, and I am currently completing an article uh, manuscript about – Paula Strasberg, who was the wife of Lee Strasberg, the direct, the first director of the actor's studio. So again, I'm like many, like many stories of women in the fifties, I somehow had to be a woman trapped in the fifties again, because I find that subject really interesting. So I'm doing sort of a, a speculative historical account of Paula Strasberg, who um, was also, was blacklisted. She was named by Ilya Kazan when he, uh, when he gave names in the early 50 in the, in the, early to mid fifties. Um, and so I'm doing kind of a, what I'm calling a method reading of the untold story, uh, an untellable story of Paula Strasberg. So it's a continuation in many ways of this project and that um, a lot of the women writers of, of the 1950s, are lost. So even though I focus on these women, in many ways, the reason I focus on them is because there is enough archival material to put together a story and to understand them as people and as um, artists. But there are so many, so many names that um, I couldn't find enough of their work or enough about them to include them in the study. So I recognize that there is a story of, of women writing in this moment. Um, and then I'm only telling one fraction of it. So I really hope that, you know, however long it takes me to continue writing about this at a book length, I hope that other people will continue, continue the journey, continue the, the work with me, um, because I think it's really important. And I think that their stories, their stories, their personal stories and their, and their actual, their stories they wrote really deserve to be brought to light.